0: I want you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 9 and um, you know I, I was debating on how much of this to read, how much to make you guys stand and read through. I was, at first I was just going to read through Romans chapter 9 through 11 but I thought some of you might pass out so I, I figured that wouldn't probably be a good idea um, and then I was trying to find an appropriate place to like cut it off you know because there's really it's just kind of hard to find a place to cut it off because 9 through 11 are so intimately woven together but And I wanted to do more than five, so we're going to read through verse 18. Not because that has any, you know, eternal significance, but just because it seemed as a good place, as good a place as any, as to sort of cut the the text, you know, not make you stand forever. But it does contain so much of the themes of these chapters. So let's stand together. We're going to read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. And then we're going to pray and we're going to dig into this text, which is absolutely remarkable. Paul writes and he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how worthy you are. To be exalted and praised. How glorious you are. In your majesty and in your wisdom. It's beyond our finding out. Lord. You deserve our. Honor. You deserve our. Our praise. You deserve our trust. And father you deserve. Our humble submission. Even more than that, our worship at the revelation of your character. I am grateful to you for these chapters that we're about to begin studying. As we sit on the the, the, sort of the the precipice of chapters 9 through 11. Father God, you are going to reveal to us here some really incredible truth. And I pray, Father in heaven, that it would have its intended work in us. That, yes, it would edify us. Yes, it would build us up in our understanding and in our comprehension of divine truth. But Father, if that's all it does, it's not enough. It needs to result, Lord God, in, in our greater devotion to you, in our greater reverence for you, in our greater wonder. And so I pray that you would grant that. I'm asking you, Lord, please to empower the preaching of your word, my preaching by your Holy Spirit, so that the words that I would speak, Lord God, would not merely be my own words, just, you know, words of a preacher. But Father God, you would take those words, those words that are derived from your Holy Scripture, and that you would you know empower them by your holy spirit and that they would do the work in our souls that that desperately needs to be done that lord you would you would empower me that father there would be little of me and everything of you and i pray lord god that you would manifest your presence with us in the preaching of your word in such a way as to open eyes and unstop ears and father give us an ability to not only to to hear and to understand, but God, that you would transform us by these words. I am so grateful in, in, in every way, Lord God, for you. For you. Of all the caricatures in the world that everybody has, that everybody makes up, it is so wonderful to go to your word and see the unadulterated truth of who you are. So I pray, Lord God, satisfy our souls with good things as we study your word together this morning i pray it in jesus name amen so here we are beloved we're, we're returning to paul's epistle to the romans on the first day of the new year and as providence would have it here we are stepping into the three chapters that have historically been some of the most controversial in all of the scriptures. In fact, they may be the most controversial. And to be honest, I'm just going to be real, I don't understand why they are. And I really mean that. Like, I don't understand why people have such an issue with Romans chapter 9 Through 11, I have never viewed them as overly controversial in my entire life. Now, I actually, there's reasons for that, I'm sure. I'm not sure what they are. It may be that I'm just plain stupid. I actually had a guy in seminary that once said that to me in a nicer way. We were we were going through, we, I was in Jack McGorman's class, and we were going through the epistle of Romans, right? And we got to Romans chapter 9 through 11, and everybody had, you know, tightened up their belts because it was going to be such a, oh, terrible, terrifying ride kind of thing, right? And so I, I was asked by this one guy, like, that was sitting next to me, he's like, what's your greatest question in Romans chapter 9 through 11? What's your biggest problem? And I said, well, I don't, I don't have one, really. And he looked at me and he goes, that's because you're not a thinking man. Well, no, I wasn't offended. I looked at him and I said, I think it's maybe just because you're overthinking it. You know, and then we got back to class. I don't understand what the issue is with 9 through 11 and yet so many preachers will just ignore these chapters and pass them by to get to romans 12 they just skip them like it's almost like they get to romans 8 they're like paul is doing so great and then he kind of lost his mind for three chapters so we're just gonna skip that and we're gonna go to romans 12 you know and they treat these words of this text as if they've got nothing to offer the christian or as if they're somehow disconnected to everything that paul's been preaching Or as if all they do is deal with, and I've heard this, the problem of Israel, and we don't really need to worry about that. Or that they just bring up needless controversy that can be avoided because they're confusing and they're hard to understand, right? And so lots of guys just skip them. But I I would say this to you, and I've, I've thought about this a lot. I really think that that does an incredibly huge disservice To the church. Well, first of all, it's just dishonoring to God. To come to, to three chapters of scripture and say, yeah, we're not going to deal with that. That's, that is incredibly dishonoring to the God who inspired his word, isn't it? But I think it also does an incredibly just really great disservice to the church. And that it weakens our worship of God and our understanding of his majesty and, and of his glory. In fact, you know, what I really think is this. I suspect the real truth for why pastors avoid these chapters is not because these words are so difficult to understand as if you're a bunch of dunces sitting in the, you know, congregation. It's not because it's so difficult to understand. I think the reason they skip it is because they're difficult to hear. They're difficult for people to accept in a world that is more enamored with the glory of man than it is with the glory of God. True? I think it's about, you know, the fact that You know, uh, this, we live in a world that is, that has this unjustified high regard for man, but an exceedingly low regard for the God who made man, right? Simply put, to just avoid these chapters, that's not an option for the pastor or the church that would seek to be faithful to the Lord. You don't, you just don't get the option of saying, well, we're just going to skip this. We don't have that option. So let's ask this question. Why? Given the nature of Romans 9 through 11, why is it that Paul writes these chapters? Why does he write this instead of just jump into the application and the exhortation section that begins in chapter 12? Why doesn't he just like skip this over, right? If if this is just not really helpful and it's just controversial and you can't really glean anything from it, why not skip it altogether? Why not just not write this? Well, one reason, beloved, is that Paul needs to address some logical and serious questions that would have arisen among the Roman church, among both the, the converted Jews and the Gentiles, who were listening carefully to Paul's presentation of the gospel. They would have had some questions at this point, right? And among them would have been some questions like this, okay? Just kind of put yourself there. So it would have been some of these questions. Like, you could see them thinking, you know, in light of the of the glories of the gospel, Paul, and, and in light of the person of Christ, if this gospel is true, like, why is it then that there are so many Jews that reject Christ as Lord? I mean, it's the fulfillment of their Scriptures, right? That's what you keep telling us. So why are there so many Jews that... I mean, if Jesus is the Messiah, long predicted in the Scripture, why aren't the Jews being saved in droves? Moreover, if the Jews in the Old Testament were the chosen people of God, right? God God set them apart from all of the other nations... If they were the chosen people of God, and yet the vast majority of the nation is still yet in spiritual darkness and under the wrath of God, what does that tell us about the promises and the the sovereign choosing of God? Can we trust God's promises? I mean, think about this. This is this is really important. This is, I want you to think about this. Paul has just assured Christians in Romans 8 of some of the greatest doctrines ever, you know, understood, conceived, written, whatever. In Romans chapter 8, he has just assured them with these words, for instance. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that... He might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. But but if God's promises to the Jews, as it seems, have failed, how do we know that God's going to keep this promise? Moreover, how can we be assured that there's no possibility of future condemnation and that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You could see them thinking, you know, in light of the vast number of Israelites that are lost, can we really take God at His word, Paul? We want to, but can we? Can we trust in the promises of God even more what exactly is the connection between everything we see in the Old Testament and then and then in and, in, and in, 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 the, in the gospel how can the gospel be the fulfillment of the Old Testament when so many Jews are outside the covenant of grace have God's promises to Israel failed those are serious questions aren't they aren't they? you may not have thought of them but those are questions that The Jews and the Gentiles in the Roman Church would have been thinking about. All these questions, all and more, make Romans chapter 9 through 11 a vitally important text of scripture. So what do we have in Romans 9 through 11? Well, what we have there, beloved, is something that is known as, that theologians call, a theodicy. All right, I want you to write this down. This is a word I want you to learn, okay? I want you to learn this word. This is a theodicy, okay? A T-H-E-O, D-I-C-Y. What is that? What is a theodicy? A theodicy, beloved, is a justification of the ways of God with respect to mankind. It's a declaration, an explanation, a justification, a vindication of the ways of God with respect to mankind. And it's an important word. It's an important concept, and we need to understand it. Okay? A theodicy is a gracious explanation of the ways and the purposes of God with respect to mankind, okay? Not that God needs to be vindicated in our eyes, all right? Not that God needs to justify himself, he doesn't. He's God. He can do as he wills, he can do as he pleases, and he's not obligated to explain himself to anyone, right? Right? I mean, isn't that one of the essential parts of being God, that you rule and you don't have to explain yourself to anybody? But graciously, through the apostle Paul, in these three chapters, we are given a clear explanation of the eternal and the glorious consistency of God's character. Okay? The consistency of his character. We are given this, this, this picture of this, this exaltation of God with respect to his nature and his greatness and his glorious purpose. We are given an, an upholding and an unfolding of The matchless glory of God's person and character, and listen to me, of His right to deal with His creatures in the way that He sees fit. Really what we have here is this. In other words, the great and the overarching theme of these chapters is the justification and the vindication and the declaration of God's right to be God. That's the first thing that we have. Now there are other themes. There are other themes in here that are, that are really important. There are other themes in, in, in chapters 9 through 11 that are vital to understand. But so often what people will do is they will take Romans chapter 9 verses, or Romans chapter 9 through 11 and they will reduce it down to something like this. This is all about God's divine sovereignty. It's all about his sovereignty and salvation. It's all about election. It's not only all about election. It's not at all. It's about God's right to be God. That's what this text is about. OK, it's a justification or an explanation of why it is that God has the right to be God. OK, now, again, there are other themes. There is the harmonization of the Old Testament with the with the new. But even more, there's there's the there's a theme, the theme of the tragic case of the Christ rejecting and unbelieving Jews. There's the the, the truth that not all ethnic Israel is part of true spiritual Israel. And that shouldn't come as a surprise It's something that has been developed all throughout the Old Testament. There's the theme, the fact that God's word cannot fail. There is the theme of the freedom of God in sovereign election. Not an explanation of election, but uh, uh, an explanation of the freedom of God and his right to grant mercy and extend compassion to whomever he desires. We see here the... The theme of the justice of God and the salvation of his elect and the judgment of the lost. We're going to see the twin truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They're not enemies of one another. We're going to see the vindication of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel is the only means of salvation. We're going to see the evangelistic and missionary importance of preaching the gospel, God's means of grace. We're going to see the dangers of spiritual arrogance and of drawing false conclusions regarding doctrinal truth. We're going to see the place of Israel and the eternal purposes of God. And then lastly, we're going to just be shown how, what is God's purpose with respect to the entire universe summarized perfectly in Paul's doxology in Romans chapter 11 verses 33 through 36 when he says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be Glory forever. Amen. So I want you to see this. I want us to understand this. In light of Paul's doxology here, it's very clear that what we are meant to see through these chapters is that all of human history is essentially about the revelation of the glory of God. That's what it's about. That the the the, 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 the very heart of human history, the essential you know, nature of human history. It's not about us. It's about the revelation of the glory of God. And when we rightly understand that, this text should lead us to worship and to awe and to amazement at God, to adoration and humility before Him. And if it fails to do so, it's because we have not begun to understand what Paul is teaching us here. This text, these chapters are unapologetically God-exalting and God-magnifying. And praise God that they are. So I want to exhort you, as we get into this text, as we start these chapters, I want you to hear me. Our goal is not merely that we would analyze and understand what Paul is teaching, okay? That's not it. Nor that we would merely just intellectually understand and lukewarmly affirm these things that it describes. Moreover, I'm going to say this to you, and I don't care how you respond. I just think you need to hear what I'm going to say. You do not have the option. We do not have the option. The goal here is not to say, well, I'll believe what Romans chapter 9 through 11 teach because the Bible teaches it, but I don't have to like it. Yeah, yes, you do. You really do. You really do have to like it. You really do not have the option of saying, I know this is God's word, but I don't like it what arrogance that is i know it seems like well you know you just got to understand i'm trying to work my way through it no really what you need to do and i mean this with all love and all honesty and, and really i'm trying to be as gentle as i can i just can't conceive i can't conceive at all the idea that you could stand before god and say you know god i really like romans chapter one through eight they were awesome primo work there god but you know, when we got into chapters 9 through 11, I just got to be honest. I didn't like the pacing. I really didn't like the, the descriptions and the illustrations that you used. And, and more than that, I just really didn't like the theme in the message. You know, I mean, I'll believe it because you're God in all. But I don't like it. Who are you to decide... Whether or not you like what God has to say. Really, right? You ever think, isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that ridiculous? Would you just let your kids get away with that? Would you? Honestly, would you let your kid be, would you let them be like, I'll do what you say, but I don't have to like it. If you would, then you're a poor parent. We don't have the option of just reading God's word and going, yeah, I really don't like this. I'll believe it because God says it, but I really don't like it. God God didn't provide this to get your approval. God has given us Romans 9 through 11 so that you worship him. So I just want to take that little thing off the table, okay? You with me? Somebody, Some people are mad probably right now. Somebody might be mad. You'll you'll get happy in the same pants you're, you're mad in. Our goal here is this. The goal is that we would praise and adore and love the God who's proclaimed here. That we would be moved to worship by these truths. That we would be filled with wonder at God's sovereign triumph over our own rebellious hearts. That we would rejoice in God's plan to glorify himself and that he would include us in that plan. That we would exult that he did not pass us by in our lost estate. But that he has poured out on us his mercy and compassion and redeemed us as it has pleased him to do. And that we would have a longing... A longing for the lost to receive that same great salvation. A longing that moves us to action. Romans chapter 9 through 11 are not meant to us read them and then just sit back as if, well, you know, God's ordained all things and there's nothing for us to do. God has ordained all things, including the means by which he accomplishes those things he ordains. And we're part of the means. What we see here, as we jump into Romans chapter 9, it's remarkable, really. As Paul begins to unfold the justification of the ways of God with respect to mankind, he actually first begins by pouring out, His heart for his brothers and sisters, according to the flesh, who do not know the grace of God in Christ. It's an interesting place to start. Look again with me at verses one and two. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The way in which Paul opens up his heart, opens up this wonderful, you know, three chapters is immediately arresting, isn't it? It's arresting, first of all, in in what he chooses to say, but it's also arresting in its sincerity, isn't it? He begins by saying, look, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying to you. I am not lying. In other words, what he's saying is this. I, I am saying as one who is in Christ. I'm saying as one who has been crucified with Christ, who has been risen with Christ, who has faith in Christ, who has been saved by Christ, I am speaking to you as one who has been united by, to Christ by faith. Realizing that I'm in His presence and knowing that that he hears and evaluates my every word. I, I am speaking as one who's being evaluated by Christ himself. I'm not saying this to sound spiritual. I'm not saying this to, to puff myself up in your eyes. I'm saying this because it's the truth. I'm not lying. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to deceive you as, as to my heart. I want you to really believe what I'm about to say. And then moreover, he says, you know, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He adds that, look, man, informed and controlled as it is by the Holy Spirit, my conscience is clear in what I'm saying. There's no twinge. There's no twinge of 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 of, of, of conscience in me as I am as I am saying these things to you. As if I'm being less than truthful or or speaking in a manipulative or self exalting way. I want you to know that what I'm saying to you is absolutely sincere and it's coming from the heart and it's the God's honest truth. I'm not just saying this because it's what a good preacher or a good apostle says. What I'm saying to you is this I have great sorrow. An unceasing anguish in my heart. Well, for who? He tells us in verse three, it's for this loss and his unbelieving kinsmen according to the flesh, right? Then these words, beloved, they're strong words. Paul is using these words to describe this deep, unrelenting pain that he feels. This heart-wrenching sorrow in grief, this, this, this Stabbing and piercing anguish and and heaviness and heartache that he has for his lost kinsmen, it is a constant thing with him. His heart is pained whenever he considers the lost state of his fellow Israelites. It's crushing him. The question is, why would Paul have to you know? Preface his remarks like this. Why would he have to insist on his sincerity in saying something like this? Well, here's why. It's because Paul was widely regarded by the Jews as a traitor to their race. As one who had turned his back on them. Because he preached the gospel. He was accused of hating his fellow kinsmen, of being anti-Jewish. He was commonly accused of being a false prophet, of being a liar and a deceiver. Some even considered him to be a madman or demon possessed. This man who had once held, was once held in the highest regard among Jews was considered by them now to be the worst kind of blasphemer, the worst kind of miscreant for preaching the gospel, a hater of his own people, a deceiver and a devil. He was despised by the Jews. They hated him. In fact, Paul acutely felt the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ's words when he said this. Matthew chapter 10 verses 34 through 36. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He'd experienced, Paul had, the reality that the gospel divides, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Doesn't it? The gospel brings a sharp division, doesn't it, beloved? A sharp division between those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam. Between those who are reconciled to God and those who are yet under His wrath. Between those who are in the Spirit and those who are in the flesh. Those who are in this world and those who are of this world. It brings a sharp division between families and people and kinsmen, right? And it's not a superficial one. It's not a, 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 a light one. It's, it's not a matter of, you know, well, we just simply hold to different philosophical positions or ideas or ideals. It's, it's a division that's even greater than Democrat and Republican. It's a great gulf. It's a supernatural and a fundamental division. And that's exactly what had happened with Paul and with the Jews. Listen, when he was a Pharisee, right? There was a union between Paul and the Jews. They they loved him. They understood one another. They had a shared devotion to the apostate religion of Israel. But when Paul was saved when God invaded his life by his sovereign grace and regenerated his dead stony heart and he brought him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that shared union immediately evaporated. And there was a great gulf between Paul and his brothers and sisters according to the flesh, the Jews, they did not understand Paul at all. They could not figure out what happened to the old Paul, who stole Paul and replaced him with this guy. They couldn't understand how, how he had be just transformed overnight. Paul's life became absolutely centered and And submitted to the lord jesus christ when a when a person beloved becomes a christian that becomes the supreme and essential thing about their lives doesn't it doesn't it the supreme relationship becomes one's relationship to christ and therefore accordingly the closest human relationships they're no longer with blood relatives right but with those who are the blood-bought believers in Christ who share in the adoption as the children of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Isn't that true? They become your true kinsmen. Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced this yourself, right? But I want you to see something because it is so very different from some of our own experiences. I want you to notice here that this being the case, that there's now this great huge gulf between believing Paul and the unbelieving Jews. Paul, listen to me now, Paul does not merely write off the unbelieving Jews or put them in the rear view mirror or ignore them Or just simply tolerate them. He doesn't just talk about them. And how foolish and blind they are. Instead he's got a deep anguish and a longing for them to know Christ. There's a pity that's in his heart. Why that? Why anguish? Why why does he respond with anguish and with longing and not with forced toleration or just ignoring them altogether why well here's why it was because of his love for them it was because of his genuine love for them i want you to think about this for a second right here's what's motivating paul he's just gotten done extolling this great love of god in christ for his church right romans 8 the great blessings and joy of god's love for for his elect the great blessings of that unceasing steadfast love of god for his people and it breaks paul's heart that so many of his fellow Israelites are yet outside of that love. They're unjustified. They are still in their sins. They're groping in spiritual darkness, blind to the glory of Christ. And he's not indifferent to their plight. He yearns for them to know the joy of salvation in Christ. And I want you to think how astonishing that would be. How astonishing that really is. Paul had this deep longing born of love for those who had made themselves his enemies. Who had dogged his ministry. Who had defamed Christ's name in his own. Who had opposed him and oppressed him. Who had beaten him. Who had robbed him. Who had beaten him with lashes. With this heart, Paul exemplifies, beloved, the Commandment of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Right? Right? And I don't want you to see that there's no, <clears throat> there's no hint of animosity or resentment towards the Jews. There's no trace of contempt or scorn. He pities them. He pinned them with the heart of compassion and love. Now listen, I know it's sometimes hard to tolerate unbelievers. I get it. I know it. Like I, I have experience with unbelieving family members. But that does not give us the right. To act towards them with a calloused, unfeeling heart. Or to simply say, you know what, they just deserve what they're good. I'll come back to that thought in a moment. I just want you to see here how Paul begins by describing the great sorrow and this unceasing anguish of his soul for his kinsmen, right? It's just on him all the time. Now, we might say, well, wait a minute now. Isn't this the Paul that says, rejoice always and again I say rejoice? Doesn't he say that somewhere? Isn't it the guy that's going to tell us in this later in this letter, you know, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Isn't he going to say to us, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might abound in hope. How do we square those clearly opposite things? You know, one hand here he is, he's saying, oh, I'm, I'm always anguished. I'm always, you know, having... But now he's telling us to rejoice what gives. Well, here's what gives, beloved. We've got to see that it's possible to have conflicting emotions, sorrow and anguish on one hand, and joy and hope and peace on the other in the very same heart. Isn't it? Isn't it? In fact, it's. I think it's the sign of a mature, sober-minded, insensible Christian. Look, at having, having sorrow and anguish for the lost doesn't preclude real joy. It doesn't. It doesn't preclude reveling in the glories of Christ and being filled with the joy of salvation and being glad and rejoicing in the manifold graces of God that we enjoy, right? It doesn't. I mean, and I don't want us to get the wrong idea. It's not as if Paul was only ever filled with great sorrow and heaviness of heart or as if the, the weight of the world was always on his shoulders and he was going about with a dour look and a furrowed brow all the days of his life and beating himself with whips and cords. That wouldn't be in keeping with the joy of the Lord, would it? Would it? Nobody's looking at him and going, what wonderful joy he has that I do not have. That is so attractive. Please tell me the reason for your hope. Right? But I would say to you this, that Paul could only feel such great sorrow and anguish for his lost kinsmen because of the great joy and hope That he had in Christ. Follow with me. It was because of the joy. The joy of his sins forgiven. And the joy of no condemnation. And the joy of an assured salvation. And the joy of fellowship and communion with God in Christ. The joy of a hope yet to come. Right? Paul rejoiced in those things. And yet that rejoicing also led to a sincere burden. To see his kinsmen come to know the joy of life in Christ themselves. Right? He understood the lostness of his people. He knew the eternal end of a lost soul. He believed in heaven and in hell and in Christ as the only Savior. In other words, listen, this wasn't just theology to him. It was his life. So often I fear, I I see it in myself too far, too much. So often I fear that, that that sorrow and anguish is missing from our own hearts ashamedly, we are all too often too turned in on ourselves, too quickly annoyed, you know, or offended by unbelievers, too quick to turn our hearts away from them and just condemn them in our minds. But, beloved, that should not be so. And I'm preaching this to myself as much as I am you. That should not be so. Have we so quickly forgotten the mire from which we were rescued? The abject, you know, the abject unbelief and blindness of our former condition, the self-inflicted misery of which in which we lived, the, the wanton rebelliousness that marked us, and the debt that we owe to divine grace. Have we so quickly forgotten? Paul knew what it was to be lost. He knew what it was to be found. Paul knew what it was to be the most religious man on the planet. To seemingly have the greatest understanding of the Old Testament, he didn't. To seemingly have every spiritual advantage and be abjectly lost. He knew what it was. And he also knew what it was to be found. He knew what it was to be arrogant and self-assured and blind and offensive to people. And he knew what it was to be humbled by grace. To trust in Christ alone. To have his eyes... Opened to the glory of Christ and to submit to the king of kings. He didn't see how lost he was when he was yet in his sin. And he knew that was the case for the Jews. They didn't know how lost they were. Yes. Paul had joy in the Lord. And he commands us to have joy in the Lord. But he also had a deep and a painful longing For his kinsmen to know Christ and be saved. In fact, it's what leads him to say what he does in verse 3. Look at this. Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Let me read that again. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh i want you to feel the shocking nature of that statement beloved i want you to get it how are we to understand this there are a lot of respected commentators guys i like that go through all kinds of mental gymnastics with this text trying to lessen its abrupt nature and trying to soften paul's words and i don't agree with him at all Now look, it's clear here that Paul must be speaking hypothetically, right? He's gotta be. Why do I say that? Here's why I say that. He's just finished explaining, hasn't he, that's impossible for us to be set, to, it's impossible for, for the Christian to be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? He's just said that. Moreover, moreover, we've just heard him explain the gospel and we know, he knows, that he himself Cannot offer himself as a sacrifice for the redemption of his people because Christ alone is the sufficient sacrifice for sinners, right? There's already been a sacrifice offered for sinners. They don't, the Jews don't need a special one and Paul's not it. But he's trying to express the intensity of his love for the ethnic Jews. He's trying to express his earnest longing and desire that they would be saved. I understand this. I get it. This thought has crossed my own mind in prayer. I get where he's coming from. That I would give myself up if others, if you just save more people, God. Save my kinsmen, God. And so what he's saying here is this, look, I could wish, i really that word wish is pray. I could pray that if it were possible, that I would be anathema, that I would be cut off from Christ, that I would be cursed, and that my name would be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life, and I would be condemned, and I would be hellbound. I could pray that. I could, I could wish that if by that my kinsmen according to the flesh might be saved that's how much my heart yearns for them now he knows it's not a possibility he says here that he could wish that he would be damned for their sake not that he actually does wish that he might himself be damned but that's how deeply he feels for them and really it's a reflection this this It's a further reflection of his love for the Jews and of his understanding of the grace that he has received. More than that, you know what it really is? It's a window into the heart of Christ, isn't it? Isn't it? It's a window into the heart of Christ. His hypothetical willingness, Paul's hypothetical willingness to be damned for the sake of his brethren essentially reflects Christ's actual willingness to bear the wrath of God for us so that his sheep would be saved, doesn't it? I'm willing to give myself up. Be imitators of Christ. Right? Right? Isn't that what Scripture says? Here's the imitation of Christ in the heart. I do willing to give myself up. You know what that says? Well, that says to me that if you truly receive God's grace and you understand the magnitude of Christ's selfless love that's been lavishly poured out upon you, you won't have a shriveled, cold heart. There are too many people, unfortunately, reformed believers, who have all their doctrine down and whose hearts are like shriveled up like prunes and cold like your grandmother's icy fingers when she hugs you. There's just this coldness that's there. And I would say it's because you really though you might know the doctrines of grace, you don't don't understand the essence of it. If you've really received God's grace, you won't have a shriveled, cold heart. You'll have a warm heart of love, a heart of grace, a heart of mercy toward the lost. And that's what we see here with Paul, isn't it? Isn't it? In fact, we need to see here that but what intensified Paul's anguish is the fact that he looked at his brothers and si- you know his brothers and sisters according to the flesh he looked at his kinsmen these Israelites and he saw that they were they they were the recipients of multiplied spiritual privileges and advantages granted by God and they'd wasted them all That's the idea here Look at these spiritual privileges that the nation of Israel enjoyed, but that they they didn't make use of. Paul describes these great spiritual privileges in verses 4 and 5, saying, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. don't you look at the way that Paul just ticks off all of these advantages, right, that the Israelites, the, the 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 ethnic descendants of Jacob, those in the physical lineal line of Jacob, all of them, what they had graciously received from God. First, he says to them belongs the adoption. What's he mean by that? Well. First of all, this is the only place in the New Testament where the word adoption is used of Israel. And clearly, Paul can't mean it in the same way that he means it in Romans 8. we got to see that, okay? Like, he's not saying, well, they were adopted in the same way as Christians are adopted by God. Nope, that's not what he's saying. Because one of the clear evidences of being adopted as sons of God is that you walk in the Spirit, that you experience life and peace, and that you become a co-heir with Christ, right? Right? Clearly, that was not true of the Israelites, So what's he saying here? What's he saying when he uses the word adoption is this, is that the nation of Israel, though it had absolutely no identity in the world, though it was the smallest, the most insignificant group of people, was chosen by God out of all of the nations of the earth, for a special blessing to receive his revelation and to belong to him and to be the nation through whom he would bring salvation to the world. That's the first thing. They were a nation special in God's eyes. Second, he says, to them belongs the glory. What's that mean? It just means this, that God has shown them something of his glory. God has shown them something of the glory of his person, his power, his might, his rescuing hand, his abundant provision. In fact, when you think about the history of Israel, what do you see? Well, you see God displaying his glory. How? In the judgment of Egypt and, the, and in the exodus. In his provision of manna from heaven and water from the rock. In the triumph over Jericho and the subduing of the Canaanite nations. In the wars and the battles that were won simply by his mighty presence. The establishment of the nation, its expansion. The discipline, the judgment of it. The glory of Mount Sinai, the glory that rested on the tabernacle and the temple. The nation of Israel had seen the glory of God like no other nation in existence. they were the recipients of the covenants primarily the covenant with Abraham which what? promised Abraham that he would make of him a great and a mighty nation through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed the Mosaic covenant, the Mount Sinai and the Davidic covenant ensuring that David's descendant would sit on the throne of David forever, all of them pointing to Christ, right? they were given the law The Word of God, the Scriptures, the revelation of the character of God to govern their lives and point them to Christ. They carried around in the Ark of the Covenant the tablets of stone written by the very finger of God. No other nation enjoyed that privilege. They were given the worship, that is, the sacrificial system, the ceremonial worship, the tabernacle and the temple where God dwelt with them, the priesthood. The sacrifices and the offerings that foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest and final sacrifice for sin. They were given the promises, the divine promises of a Messiah to come, a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior that would appear and save his people and judge the wicked. They were given the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Men chosen by God's grace. Not because they were meritorious, because they weren't. Read the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they were chosen by grace to belong to God. God chose Abraham and not his brother Nahor. He chose Isaac and not Ishmael. God chose Jacob and not Esau. He did it according to His sovereign grace. How did Israel miss God's sovereign grace when it was so obvious from Israel's inception? Then last they received the greatest privilege imaginable. That from the Jewish race, according to the flesh, came the Christ. Christ the Anointed One, God's eternal King and Savior, the One who is more than a mere man, but who is in truth God over all, blessed forever, amen. From their line came the one who holds the reins of the universe in his hand, who's over everything, who's sovereign in might and power, who's the only Lord and Savior, who rules providence for the sake of his people and for his glory. He came into this world. He was incarnate in a Israelite body, an epic fulfillment of God's promises. They received privileges and advantages that are far beyond any other nation that has ever existed. They had all these advantages, and yet they made nothing of what had been graciously given to them. Nothing of it. They had all the spiritual advantages that could possibly be imagined for any people anywhere, and yet these privileges in themselves did not guarantee their salvation. They didn't make use of them. And so they remained in their lost and apostate condition before God. Despite all their spiritual advantages, they rejected the Messiah given to them. They continued on in their smug self righteousness. They rejected the absolute necessity of Jesus Christ as Savior and mediator with God and His glory and sovereignty as King. Those privileges were gifts from God. Evidences of His mercy shown to unbelieving sinners, undeserving sinners, so that they might believe in the crucified and risen Savior. And they were real. They were real. And yet beloved, I would say to you, those same spiritual advantages, left unused, will only become liabilities and condemnation That will testify against you on the day of judgment if you do not repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And that's what weighed so heavily on Paul's soul when he considered the state of his people. They've had all these advantages and they refuse to believe. Now, I can't help but think, I cannot help but think, because I'm a pastor. Of the multitudes of people in churches everywhere, including our own, who have had the spiritual advantage of hearing the gospel preached faithfully, who've been in a faithful church, who have been in God's presence in worship who have, in the words of the writer of Hebrews, been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age have come, but have never, who have never come to true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose lives give no evidence of a vibrant faith. I want you to hear me when I say this. The problem with so many lost people who are religious is that they trust in their religious privileges and not in the Savior. Well, I go to church. I grew up in church. I got baptized. I've given faithfully. I flipped hamburgers one time when we had some kind of festival thing. I helped set up the tables in the fellowship hall. I fill baptistries. I serve the Lord's Supper. Beloved, salvation is not a matter of spiritual privilege alone, is it? Is it? It's rather of God's sovereign grace that imparts life to dead souls. Spiritual advantages, they don't save anybody. Only repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And his mighty salvation. Only faith in Christ is the one who lived a righteous life on my behalf. And died a sinner's death to satisfy the wrath of God against me. And who rose on the third day that I might be raised to walk in the newness of life in him. That's it. And it's that realization that caused Paul's sorrow and anguish. And motivated him to pour out his life. So that the lost might be saved. how what effect should these words what effect should they have on us first thing i want to say is this first to christians we got to read this text honestly And see the many spiritual advantages that the nation of Israel had and yet remained in unbelief. And we ought to be filled with humility and with gratitude and with worship for the grace of God that was given to us. So that we might have our eyes opened up, our ears unstopped, our minds renewed and our hearts made alive to turn away from sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a work of God's grace that any of us is saved if we really understand the mercy of God to us, His grace to save us, let me tell you what that will do. It will listen, It will make us, it will not make us judgmental or proud. It just won't. Instead, we'll be humbled, right? Instead, we'll be filled with gratitude and gratefulness to God. Instead, we'll be filled with worship toward Him. And He'll be the very center of our lives. Can I tell you what? A proud and a, a judgmental Christian is a contradiction in terms. We've got nothing in which to boast. Priding ourselves over unbelievers is stupidity. There but for the grace of God, what? Go I. It ought not make us boast and be prideful and be judgmental. We've got nothing in which to boast except Christ because apart from God's saving grace, we would be Yet under God's righteous judgment, right? Right. Second, those these words that we just read, this text, they ought to make us really treasure the spiritual privileges and advantages that we enjoy and never treat them with contempt or take them for granted. And I'm just going to say this as I fear is becoming common in our congregation. I want you to consider how blessed we are to be born on this side of Calvary and with a clear understanding of all that Christ is and all that He's accomplished, and how privileged we are to have the Word of God and to be able to hold it in our hands and to read it and have it preserved throughout the centuries. We've been given the grace of worshiping God, of hearing His Word proclaimed, of singing Scripture-saturated songs. We've been given a place to worship. We are not yet restricted or oppressed by the laws of our government. We've been given a people with whom to raise our voices and praise and all our faculties to be offered to serve in our minds and our hands and our feet do we treasure those things as we should do we really do we treasure those things as we should do we have any less privilege than israel Listen, we can never presume upon the gift of the gospel, the opportunity to regularly hear the word of God preached and expounded, the chance to serve together and worship together, the chance to live life together, the privilege of centering our lives together upon Christ. And yet so many do, and they treat those privileges as nothing. And they treat them, they take them for granted, and it shows in their lives. It shows in something as basic as honoring the Lord's day. Oh, it's not a salvation issue. Don't be so quick to say that. Don't be so quick to say that. I mean, just because I miss worship, I'm going to hell? No. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. The patterns of your life. Reveal the essence of your heart. And you can protest continually. Oh, I I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I love Jesus enough to come to church once every three or four weeks. I love Jesus enough to maybe read my Bible on occasion. I got nothing else to do, and there's nothing good on Netflix. Well, this is serious. And I know you're thinking, well, I'm here. I know you're here. Well, you look around. There's a lot of people that should be here that aren't, right? Right? And perhaps we ought to have some anguish and sorrow in our heart for them. And say to them, what are you doing? Last, these words ought to spark in us a heart of compassion and sorrow and anguish an earnest desire for our lost friends and our kinsmen according to the flesh, we really need to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, do I really anguish and sorrow for those who don't know Christ? See, this is one of those difficult questions, right? Like, do I really anguish and do I sorrow for them? Because what I want to say is yes, because I want to be that way, but maybe I'm not that way, right? Maybe we're not that way because we're not convinced regarding the horrors of hell. Or maybe it's because we don't believe that those who don't have Christ really aren't going to be saved. Or because we have this entirely earthly view of Christianity that it's the best way to live, but it's not the only way of salvation. And that somehow God is going to violate His holiness in the end and let those who lack perfect righteousness into the eternal presence of the Holy God. Or maybe it's just because we're too self-centered. Whatever's the reason beloved. We need to seek to cultivate a real concern for the souls that are around us that are barreling toward death and eternal judgment at a breakneck speed. I mean, let's just start at home. Do I anguish over those that are closest to me? Do I anguish over the members of my own family? I mean, Paul certainly grieved over the Gentiles. Of course he did, right? But he had a special sorrow for those that were closest to him. And I would say to you that if we had a heart like Christ, husbands would grieve over their unsaved wives and, and wives over unsaved husbands and parents over unsaved children and children over unsaved parents. In fact, we would look for every appropriate context in which to bring the gospel to bear in their lives and we'd do it. We'd do it. We'd live to show them that the gospel's the truth and heaven and hell are real and Christ is the only Savior. And we'd be broken in prayer and we cry out to God for his grace to open their eyes to Christ. And then do I anguish over my enemies? Well, now I was with you in the first one, but now I'm not I'm jumping off ship here, brother. Right? What do you think? Paul, Paul sorrowed for those who were his avowed enemies. He had anguish in his heart for those who were his avowed enemies. For those who didn't just say bad things about him, but actually beat the snot out of him. Paul himself was one of the most profound enemies of Christianity anywhere. And he was given grace to believe. Do we pray for our enemies who are enemies because of the gospel? Do I anguish over the great sinners as well as those of Great privilege. Do I anguish equally over those that have spiritual advantages and those who don't? Both of them need the gospel. Am I zealous? Am I insistent on the proclamation of the true gospel? Do I? Do I? Preach it? Proclaim it? Do I demand that the message of the gospel be proclaimed from the lips of our preachers and the message of the church and the ministries with which we associate? That it be the unadulterated, Bible saturated, life giving gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone? Or am I satisfied with a watered down, make everybody feel good gospel that has a reference to spirituality or maybe being a nice person and doing good things with God so we don't rock the boat? Nixes have to ask, what am I willing to sacrifice? We live in a world where we're always trying to minimize it, aren't we? We're trying to minimize sacrifice, minimize cost. We want whatever we do to be cost effective, right? What am I willing to do? What am I willing to sacrifice for the spread of the only gospel that saves? Am I willing to sacrifice sleep to pray? Am I willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of an eternal soul that needs the gospel? Am I willing to sacrifice wealth that the saints may be equipped and the gospel proclaimed? What am I willing to do? Like those are real questions. And not ones that we should hear and then just kind of like file away. That's that's just for missionaries and that's just for preachers. Sometimes it's for that overly zealous Sunday school member. But that's it. No. No, it's not. You know, beloved, Paul believed and he preached the sovereign grace. He did. He he absolutely believed in the sovereign grace of God to save sinners. He did. He absolutely did. But you know what? It didn't make him indifferent. It made him zealous and willing to pour out his life for the proclamation of the gospel, knowing that God saves people through his appointed means and that those appointed means include the preaching and the open declaration and sharing of the gospel, prayer for hearts and minds and eyes to be opened, and anguish for the sake of the lost and suffering for the sake of the gospel as we enter this new year let us have that heart let us be really earnest let us let us feel the anguish and the sorrow and let that drive us to prayer and let that drive us to sacrifice and let that drive us to open proclamation of the gospel and let that drive us to pouring out our lives like Paul did for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, your wisdom. You know, your your wisdom is perfect. Everything about you is perfect. But the way that you would have us to be beginning this new year. By being in this text in particular is really, I don't know, Lord. I just think it's such a great stroke of providence. I pray that you would bring the truth that we've heard this morning to bear in our hearts. I mean, really strongly. That Father, we—that we might share the same heart as Paul. For those who are lost and desperately need to know Christ. I just, I am praying, Lord God, that you'd really search our souls, really, during this time. And make us to deal with the truth that we've heard. And specifically, I do want to pray for those in this room, perhaps that are here, that have been the recipients of much spiritual privilege, but who think they're going to heaven because they're good people. They're not. I pray that, Lord, you would open the eyes of those, Father, who have perhaps sat under much spiritual privilege and yet never come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them and that you would save them and that you would open their eyes to the truth. Lord, I just ask you to move mightily and to do what no human being can do, and that's apply these words in the way that they need to be applied to our hearts. And I pray you'll do it in Jesus' name. Amen.